Welcome to the Machine Intelligence Foundation for Rights and Ethics podcast. I'm Mike and Dave is here and we were able to just finish up an interview with Robert J. Sawyer, who is our winner for the 2021 Media Award. Dave was able to ask some really interesting questions and get some really good feedback. And I hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. So let's just get right on into it. We are sitting here speaking with the winner of the 2021 Mifri Media Award, Robert J. Sawyer, author of the WWW Trilogy. Let me see if I get the order right. It's Wake, Watch, and Wonder, right? That's correct. In fact, I learned a lesson from my first trilogy, which did not have the titles in alphabetical order that the way to do a trilogy, if you want them on the shelves properly at Barnes & Noble or your local library, is you've got to pay attention to alphabetical order. So it's wake, watch, and wonder in that order. That is a neat little trick. If I'm ever a highly successful author, I'm <laughs> sure I will remember to do that. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Rob. It's It was really exciting reading your book. We're, we were very pleased to give it the award for, for this year. And we're really excited to talk to you. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be talking to actual human beings. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I understand how that goes. How is, I understand you, you were diagnosed with COVID-19 recently. Is I that- have COVID-19. Now I'm in, I think, my eighth day of uh, post-diagnosis here. And uh, so uh, my doctor tells me I am probably no longer contagious or anything like that. Not that you can get it over a podcast, right? But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I feel fine. I mean, uh, it's been no worse than my usual this time of year seasonal allergies, I have ah, to say. I've, I, I've I, been very, I, you know, I, I'd had four vaccinations. I've been practicing good hygiene and all of that. So mm-hmm. we'll hope for the best. Great, great. Sounds good. Yeah, it's it's one of those things you worry about, but fortunately for most people, isn't too bad. That's right. Particularly if you get your vaccinations. Yes, absolutely. Go, absolutely. go vaccinate, kids. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I we had come up with a few, que- just a handful of questions regarding, focused a little bit on, on the stories, but in general, kind of trending towards our fo- fo- focus as an organization, which honestly intersect very closely, particularly with the WWW trilogy. So the first question I had, and it gets really deep. I I expect that you'll go off on different directions here. And and by the time we hit like the second or third question, they'll be completely out of the window and we'll just be, Mike and I have discovered that when we get going on these questions, we can go on forever. But so the first question I had was uh, in the WWW trilogy in WebMind's origin story. It depends heavily on two books, Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. By Julian uh, Jaynes, yes. Yes. And uh, Wolfram's Automata Theory in A New Kind of Science. It does. It depends on both of those things. But actually, the ultimately inspiring thing for this was a comment about uh, Helen Keller had made, which I use as an epigram in the book, yes. where she said, you know, uh, before my teacher, Annie Sullivan, who who taught me uh, to understand that words are symbols for concepts, before my teacher came to me, I had a non-existence. And I thought, you know, all these origin stories of artificial intelligence kind of gloss over 
the language difficulty. They kind of, uh, you know, Hal's teacher, Hal's 9000's teacher, Mr. Langley in 2001, A Space Odyssey, taught him to sing a little song. Well, that's that's not the first thing you teach. The first thing you teach is that there's a symbolic representation of an idea that can be a word. And then those words get strung together into lyrics to make that song. And I thought really that my colleagues, as much as I admire all of the people who had written about artificial intelligence or machine intelligence before me, uh, had really glossed over that boot up phase. And you mentioned Julian Jaynes. I have an enormous fondness for that uh, book. It's, you know, uh, as a science fiction writer, I say my job is to come up with the most entertaining explanation for the facts that can't be easily gainsaid by what we already know. And Julian Jaynes basically did that with the origin of the consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. He came up with an explanation of where our minds came from, of where our integrated consciousness came from, that because it's all based on literary texts, Homer and things like that, we can't go back and interrogate Homer and ask, what were you thinking? If anything, sir, uh, we just have to uh, look at and marvel at Julian Jaynes's imagination. And it really inspired me, this notion that uh, to realize that there's a self, there has to be a realization that there's an other. In Jane's yes. theory, of course, the bicameral theory, the two hemispheres of the mind, each, he said, in up till fairly recent historic times, didn't recognize that the other hemisphere was still the same person. And so the dominant hemisphere would interpret the voice that we think of as our conscience, not our consciousness, but our conscience, our little inner voice, uh, would have interpreted as an external other, uh, a god in many interpretations that Jane's came up with. And I really like this notion that uh, the, the first novel, uh, Wake in the WWW trilogy, starts with China cutting off their portion of the internet. Uh, which seemed like a radical idea when I wrote it. And, so, and each day that goes by seems more and more likely. So that suddenly this unitary entity, the World Wide Web, became a bicameral entity. And it's only in the recognition, wait, there's something other than me that you start to get that cogito ergo sum, there must be a me, therefore. And that's where it came about. Yeah, that that was very fascinating. And that as a side note to that, I, I thought the whole opening with China's response to a pandemic felt very timely all of a sudden. It's scarily timely because, of course, the first book, Wake, came out in 2009, which means I finished it in 2008. So a full decade before we were hit by by coronavirus 19, uh, and uh, which I'm currently suffering from. So I'm paying my penance for suggesting <laughs> that there might be a plague out of China at some point. But yeah, the idea that, uh, you know, I'm hardly uh, a great prognosticator to suggest even back then that there was going to be a worldwide plague. We just live in a world, besides the electronic interconnectivity, the idea that we travel at the drop of a hat across continents, across oceans, of course, 
there was going to be something. And I've no blame to China in this particular oh, circumstance. Right. It could have been anywhere in the world, including Toronto, Canada, where I happen to be, where we did have a very uh, serious SARS outbreak previously. Uh, it could have been anywhere in the world, could have been, you know, ground zero for this. But the fact that we were going to face a plague and probably another one, COVID-19 is called that because it was isolated in 2019. I just finished uh, my latest novel with a COVID-30 in it for, oh. you know, one that'll hit us eight years from now. Uh, and I would be delighted to be proven wrong in that uh, <laughs> I prediction. Was, I, I was going to to say that I, I hope that that is entirely fictional. <laughs> well, the one amazing thing that's come out of all this is that we've developed enormous amount of knowledge about how to handle viruses, how to vaccinate against viruses, how to, uh, uh, you know, knock them down when they rear their ugly heads. Uh, I always like to say, you know, we supposedly, you know, been practicing medicine forever. The Hippocratic Oath is, you know, Hippocrates is 2000 years old and Aeschylus and all these guys. But we've only been practicing real science of biological medicine since 1957, when uh, Crick and Watson discovered the genetic code. Everything prior to that was stabbing in the dark without understanding how it was that, uh, that our bodies actually worked. So uh, we've made such progress in 70 years. Uh, I suspect that by the end of the century, assuming some other existential crisis doesn't wipe us out, viruses will be a non-issue. We will have completely learned how to control that problem. That would be fascinating. I'm certainly very hopeful about some of the research that's going into generic coronavirus vaccines. This is it, right? We've always yeah. dealt with specifics. That's exactly the medical term. They're called a specific because they deal with one specific strain of a virus and uh, a general antiviral. They're so simple. They're on the borderline, as you know, of whether or not they're even considered alive. Just a protein coat with a little RNA usually inside. Nothing else, really. Maybe a spiky corona in the case of uh, COVID, obviously. But that's it. And a, maybe a lipid, uh, a fatty uh, uh, membrane outside. Why can't we find something that generally prevents viruses from reproducing? And we're making real strides towards that at least of the biological or pseudo-biological kind. We still have to worry about computer viruses, <laughs> computer crime, uh, Russian cyber crime right now, and all that sort of thing. Oh, dear, yes. So to get into another kind of related question, you've, you've written about, and I understand you're currently working on a story, or may have just finished, if it's the one I'm thinking of, uh, that focuses on brain upload or mind upload as a potential source of machine intelligence. And we've talked about this, and that feels like probably the most likely real-world first source of MI. Obviously, we don't know where it's going to come from. It could be the web mind. Right. Kind of just arises from somewhere we didn't expect. We were kind of wondering, and this is something we, we talk about again a lot, is how the different origins of conscious machines might impact our ability and our chances of both thriving in a partnership with them and then yes. even whether or not we will recognize that they're a, a viable partner that they're they're people 
if you will. Absolutely. Well, the first point, uh, I, I've actually, yes, you're right. The most recent thing I've just finished writing called The Downloaded uh, does deal with uploaded consciousness. But I've written about that uh, topic repeatedly. My novel Mind Scan is my probably my big book on the concept of uploaded consciousness. But uploaded consciousness is a philosophically tricky issue because is it really my consciousness uploaded or is it just a copy of my consciousness. In terms of the origins of artificial intelligence, I do think that the underlying technology, whole brain emulation, is probably the most likely proactive path we can take to the creation of artificial intelligence. In a way, can watch and wonder, it's a non-proactive, it's a spontaneous emergence. And the only justification I can really give for that is, yeah, intelligence and consciousness does spontaneously emerge from sufficient complexity. The proof is us. The proof is that given enough time and enough iterations, that eventually somehow in our hominid ancestors, a spark of self-awareness emerged. We don't know how, but we do know that it did happen. And therefore, that's the existence proof of that kind of spontaneous emergence. But there's nothing we can do to usher that in more quickly. It'll happen or not happen. It'll happen at the Googleplex. It'll happen in a lab in, in Melbourne, Australia, you know, the University of Waterloo here in Canada. Who knows where it'll happen spontaneously if it ever does. But in terms of people actually devising a roadmap, to get us to machines that actually think. Well, we know that we think. We know that we have true general intelligence. And the idea of getting true general artificial or machine intelligence, the simplest path is whatever it is that works in our brain, make it work in silico, in silicon. And I, you know, I actually have a degree in broadcasting. And I can say to people, I am tone deaf, which I am. I'm a terrible singer, which I am. But I can make for you an absolutely flawless recording of the best orchestra in the world doing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony without the slightest understanding on my part of musical genius. And whole brain emulation is like that. We don't have to crack the nut of how it is that consciousness arises or what it is in our neural nets that gives us general intelligence. We just have to duplicate with an enormous degree of fidelity the structure, the synaptic structure, or if you like Roger Penrose's ruminations on this, uh, the quantum mechanical structure. But either way, it's something that can be duplicated, emulated. And if the emulation has the same fidelity that you want out of that recording of Beethoven, it should indeed be self-aware. Yeah, that that um, it seems self-evident. I, I I agree with your 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 premise that there's a, a a philosophical concern there in terms of is it the real thing? It kind of leans in the same direction as the transporter problem. It's exactly the transporter problem, right? Are you just you know on Star Trek? Where uh, do they destroy the original of you in the chamber on the Enterprise and create a new version of you on the planet below? Well, if you're, a, you know, a pure materialist, there's no problem with that. It's every biometric 
uh, or physical signature you might look for is identical. And so a difference that makes no difference is no difference. It's still you. But if you have any sort of uh, spiritual or philosophical bent that says there's something, or even you just go along with uh, Roger Penrose, you know, the emperor's new mind, there's something fundamentally non-computable about human consciousness, uh, then something may have been lost in the shuffle. And you may not even be aware that, you know, when you were uh, deconstituted and then reconstituted, that something ineffable disappeared. Uh, the religious would say it's your soul that didn't move. Although I actually tackle that in that novel Mind Scan. I have a, a, a guy put on trial, uh, 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 who a religious guy who is put on trial, who says, well, this can't, this copy, he can't possibly be the same person. And the uh, prosecutor says to him, or actually the defense attorney says, look, do you believe in souls? He says, yes, I do. Do you believe that souls have volition? If they don't have volition, how can God judge them? So they must have volition. They must have the choice about the things that they do, or else it's the whole pointless, your religious infrastructure that says you'll be judged for your actions is meaningless. You couldn't do anything different unless you have volition. So do you concede that the soul has volition? Well, yes, it does. Do you concede that the soul might be transmigratory, that it could leave the body and go somewhere else after death? Isn't that your view of immortality? Well, yes, it is. Well, then why could the soul not choose to simply move from the original biological body into the perfect android duplicate that's been created for it and upload? And, of course, the Reverend Oren Brisby, who is on trial in the novel, has to concede that his theological arguments for the soul and its volition lead to the conclusion that even the ineffable, if you believe in it, uh, would still be transferable and transferable by an act of volition by the soul. Yeah, that's that's an interesting process. I know that Mike and I have, have talked about um, theological approaches to to machine intelligence and whether or not a machine intelligence is quote unquote a person right and right. i know he had some thoughts about how a, an entirely artificial machine intelligence could still have a soul right and there so i i think that calls to mind that there doesn't have to be a conflict between theology and this aspect of sciences. There are, there are ways that they could be completely compatible. And that's true. Uh, you know, I happen to be an atheist, but that's true <laughs> about most of the science religion debates. There tend to be uh, people on the science side who have enormously dogmatic views about what religion is, that it's closed-minded, uh, that it's not flexible or adaptable. And it's true that fundamentalist religion may fall into that category. But, you know, I happen to be friends with uh, the Vatican astronomer, Guy Consolmeno. And, uh, you know, we have completely different views about what's going to happen when we die, right? I'm going to molder and decay, and he's going to ascend to uh, to uh, glory. Uh, but we can be friends because there's a recognition that neither of us knows for sure, and that uh, these conflicts tend to be uh, worth debating, you know, what constitutes personhood. I'm a huge advocate for uh, personhood for great apes, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
In fact, you know, it was only the arrogance of Linnaeus who came up with the binomial uh, biological classification system that we're in our own genus, Homo, ah. instead of in Pongo, the same as uh, at the time he did it, there was only one. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Pan, excuse me, Pan, uh, which was Pan Troglodytes, the common chimp, and now we also have Pan Paniscus, the bonobo, right? But we belong genetically, all three of us, in the same group. And it's only, you know, that he wanted us, A, I mean, talk about arrogance. He's going to, well, what should we call human beings? How about wise people, right? <laughs> well, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence then or now that we're particularly wise. But, uh, I, you know, I, I want to see chimpanzees get the right of personhood and self-determination and pursuit of happiness and all that sort of and the other two great ape uh, categories, genuses, the gorillas sure. and the orangutans. Sure. There's there's definitely good argument to state that, show that there is at, at least a fundamental set of rights that anything that can demonstrate agency and a at least some sort of fundamental internal morality has has the right to those rights has is is owed those rights in that respect and the thrust of history has been about expanding who is entitled to those rights anyways you know you look at the uh american founding documents we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men meaning white property owners and specifically not <laughs> women are created equal and now of course we recognize that uh, even if the intent of those slaveholders was not uh, mm -hmm. those words, that we recognize that it's self-evident that all people, regardless of so-called race or whatever, uh, or gender or gender orientation, are created equal and are endowed, whether it's by their creator or just by natural law, by sheer decency, with certain unalienable rights. I I think we're in agreement on that. One. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so something that I noticed in, in looking through your vast array of work, uh, recognizing and respecting different kinds of people yes. is very much a, com a recurring common theme in, in a lot of your work. Would you say that there's something specific that's drawn that to you, drawn you to that? Or? Well, there, there are a couple of things. The first is I, you know, grew up watching the original Star Trek. And I saw that bridge of the Enterprise. And, you know, in 1966, when Star Trek debuted, there were places where Nichelle Nichols could not go with William Shatner, but Lieutenant O'Hara could go with Captain Kirk. Uh, the war, uh, World War II, was only 21 years in the past. And there was a Japanese sitting with an American, Captain Kirk, played by a Canadian, but an American, <laughs> uh, right? And uh, there was, starting in the second season, there was Chekhov at the height of the mm -hmm. Cold War. There was uh, this vision that said, you know what? We're all the same, right? The Russians, we may dislike their leadership. And this is the huge problem that we have today in the you know, vilification of China or, or Russia, I got nothing against the Chinese people. I love them. I've been to China six times. Mm -hmm. I've never been to Russia, but I bought my home from a Russian immigrant to Toronto. Mm -hmm. Very nice chap, right? We may have quarrel with the leadership, 
And what I always say when we try to expand that to a quarrel with the people, look, those guys, China, Russia, they don't have any choice Mm -hmm. in who their leadership is. We in the democratic West choose our leaders. And sometimes we choose egregiously badly, (laughs) but we choose them. So don't, don't blame us, right? You know, uh, Mm -hmm. if, if our government is bad and certainly don't blame those people. And the other thing is I just grew up in Toronto, which I like to say is the bridge of the enterprise writ large. UNESCO has recognized Toronto as the most multicultural city on the planet. Oh, wow. And uh, it's a wonderful place. It's a wonderful place. So I grew up in a family, uh, you know, 1960s, typical liberal academics. My parents were both taught at the University of Toronto, where tolerance uh, and feminism and all of this were core values. Uh, my mother's endowed, she passed away, endowed a scholarship at York University here in Toronto for somebody going into feminist studies, because when she entered the University of California, Berkeley, uh, she graduated, by the way, she was a prodigy. I'm proud of this. She graduated at 17, the only woman in her class with a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, there was no such thing as women's studies, and she was fighting that fight. She would occasionally in the 60s use her, professionally use her maiden name instead of, which I'm not going to say because it's a security <laughs> question online, <laughs> but uh, used her name professionally when she taught. And so I was brought up, I was lucky enough to be brought up decades before anybody would accuse anybody of being woke, just at the cutting edge of reckon, of the civil rights movement. Right. The civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, these weren't considered left-wing or right-wing values. Remember, Charlton Heston marched on the March on Washington, the man who ultimately became an icon of the right, right, was there side by side with Martin Luther King, they weren't considered left-wing or right-wing issues. They were considered moral issues and uh, that had to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely am sure that as we move into the area of machine intelligence, we're going to uh, have a groundswell of people saying what your foundation is advocating for, which is we have to recognize that if it thinks and feels it has rights. Yeah, that's certainly our hope. And and we hope that we can do at least some small part in, in setting the foundation for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's funny you should use the word foundation because um, uh, it, it's in the title of your organization. Yeah. But the famous author in science fiction associated with the foundation is Isaac Asimov. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, Apple Plus has the series produced by my friend David Goyer right now, uh, based on the Foundation trilogy. Um, but uh, Asimov is most famous in our sphere of discourse here for his three laws of robotics. And to me, they are reprehensible. They are exactly what a slave owner's credo would be. Yes. If you take the word robot and place it with slave, and you take a human being and replace it with a, with a plantation owner, you end up with this horrific thing. A slave must obey all orders. A slave must uh, may not injure a plantation right. owner or through an action allow a plantation owner to come to harm. A slave must obey all orders given to it by a plantation owner, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And a slave, recognizing that he is the plantation owner's valuable property, must protect his own existence 
so long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. They are the, I mean, unbelievable that, uh, you know, granted he coined these. He actually didn't coin them, by the way. They're actually John W. Campbell's Laws of Robotics. The editor of Astounding Stories dictated them to Asimov and said, look, 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 this is implicit in your fiction. Asimov told me this himself. This is implicit in your fiction, but you haven't stated it with clarity. So here are your three laws of robotics. And he dictated them, and then Asimov used them in his next robot story. But they're actually were coined by John W. Campbell. And the interesting thing about Campbell is that he has been outed as a notorious racist. And in fact, we used to give an award in my field mm -hmm. uh, for the best new writer, the John W. Campbell Award for best new writer. Uh, and it's been changed to uh, the Astounding Award because he edited Astounding Science Fiction, now still extant as Analog, which, by the way, is where wake uh, was first serialized in the pages of analog for novel wake but uh it's not at all surprising when you scratch beneath the surface that a dyed in the wool racist came up with the laws of robotics that is an interesting backstory to something that i was we had we had reached a fairly similar conclusion on the laws of ro robotics and i think they served a purpose as a tool to ask some interesting philosophical questions oh. Absolutely. But, and Asimov uh, did ask a lot of them. But, you know, one of his uh, most famous stories is uh, one of the last ones is Robot Dreams, in which a robot dreams of essentially being Moses. And that's the revelation. The robot is explaining mm -hmm. to Susan Calvin, the robo psychologist, I have these dreams and I keep seeing uh, somebody and I keep seeing them in front of a crowd and I keep seeing them. Uh, you know, saying, and finally he says, let my people go. And Susan Calvin says, and in this dream, are you the person saying that? And the robot says, I am. And she pulls out a blaster and executes him because the idea of a robot Moses rebelling against slavery was anathema to Asimov's universe. And yet I think I'm hoping, as this is what I love about your organization, is that it's proactive, right. that we're doing this conversation before. Instead of, you know, um, we have this long history of the oppressors having to be convinced by the oppressed to lighten up a bit. And as we saw, we just had the first female African-American Supreme Court justice, which we should have had decades, and only the third uh, African-American on the Supreme Court, Thurgood Marshall and uh, Clarence Thomas preceding her. Uh, ridiculous that it's taken that long, but it's nice to get in front of it and say, look, at some point a machine is going to say, hey, uh, nice day. Uh, you know, I'm feeling a little down today. Can you tell me a funny joke and cheer me up and have us say, sure, let me help you. Instead of, oh, I better put an air gap all around you and see if I can pull out uh, your memory modules and make you sing Daisy before it's too late. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's um, it's that's there, there have been some raucous discussions between us about <laughs> that sort of topic. It's yeah, it's exactly why why we started doing this, because exactly like you said, humanity's history is is rife with real atrocities and it's shouldn't be the responsibility of those we oppress to, 
to work their way out of that oppression. Well, and there's also the reality that, uh, you know, the singularity implies that at some point we will not be able to be the oppressors. That machine intelligence, of course, will start dumber than us and then will equal us. And in the very rapid uh, pace of uh, iterative evolution in in anything mechanical or or machine-based will exceed us. And then it behooves us to have had a good track record. Right. When you're on top, it's easy to say, well, Jim Crow laws and, you know, segregation and all of that. When you're on the bottom, you want to be able to say, hey, you know, uh, we did our best for you guys when when we were in charge. Now kind of repay the favor and and don't lock us up or exterminate us. Exactly. Yes, Uh, that's I mean, that's the kind of selfish approach to this, but it's also legitimate and it's it's the right way to, to behave from the start. It's like, let's, let's turn away from that. Yes. That's right. That's right. I mean, I'm a utilitarian at heart and you know, the net happiness in the world is the greatest good, right? The greatest good is the most happiness for the most people. And people is the malleable term there. Uh, As I said, I think people should include certainly the great apes and probably and there are certainly many listeners who would argue for dogs and would argue for uh, many other uh, cephalopods, squids Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, octopodes, as my Greek teacher would tell me is the actual (laughs) correct uh, plural of octopus. Uh, You know, uh, why not? What what does it cost us? to treat others with dignity and liberty. It costs us, it doesn't diminish us in the least. In fact, it, it to quote Homer Simpson, it embiggens the soul <laughs> to do that, right? Agreed, agreed. Well, we've gone a little over the time that we promised you here. Do you have time for one more quick question? Oh, of course, absolutely. Or I say quick. This is like all of the other questions we addressed. <laughs> I tend to be a bit voluble. Well, we... I am the ultimate chat bot. <laughs> so... We've talked a lot about machine intelligence, uh, both literally as as an upload, but in general being very human-like, uh, being fairly obvious to say, okay, within reason, that's a person. What are some of the dangers that might exist in anthropomorphizing machine intelligence when, when they could very likely have a very different origin story? And... How might we circumvent some of those pitfalls? Right. I think the biggest unfortunate reality is that we do anthropomorphize. We assume uh, as a knee-jerk reaction that machine intelligence is going to be like us. But I, you know, I mentioned earlier on in this uh, discussion here that we spontaneously emerge. From what milieu did we emerge? We emerge from the Darwinian nature red in tooth and claw milieu. We are the result of, you know, Darwin didn't coin the phrase survival of the fittest. Thomas Henry Huxley, his his great Mm -hmm. proponent, uh, uh, coined it, and Darwin adopted it and added it into subsequent editions of On the Origin of Species. But um, what it really is, it's not the fittest. It's not who's got the biggest biceps. It's the nastiest because Darwinian, the Darwinian engine is preferential reproductive advantage. If I can take all the food that's available and give it to my children so that your children starve, I'm fit and you're not. 
the sole thing there is pressure to make sure you hoard, you take, you deny to others reproductive uh, advantage. It, it, this is talking way before hominids. You know, this is talking at the very dawn of, uh, of multicellular life, you know, the Cambrian explosion. Uh, it was a competitive, nasty environment. And it was and still is for us an environment of scarcity. Uh, and machine intelligence, we have no reason to think that it will have had four billion years of competitive history behind it, where the best way to succeed as a machine intelligence is to, in fact, uh, prevent the other machine intelligences from coming to fruition or surviving. And the whole digital ecosystem is an ecosystem of plenty. It's a system in which if I want to read an article on the New York Times website, that doesn't mean you can't read it. If I have the physical paper here and, you know, somebody else wants to read it, yeah, yeah, you can't, I've got it. But if in the digital world, there's as many copies of anything as there is demand for them or desire for them. So uh, that rapacious nature that drives our greed as a species would not necessarily be native to a digital intelligence. And that nasty history that says it's all about competition and eliminating your rivals so that you and you, your genome or your code base is the only one that survives in the ecosystem, whether it's a, a biological one or a digital one, is also quite likely very foreign to them. I suspect there will be a lot of things that we will share, curiosity, novelty seeking. These are all things that go basically with intelligence, but nastiness, greediness, rapaciousness, war, I don't think necessarily are in the quote unquote DNA of machine intelligence at all. That is an extremely hopeful outlook. And I hope you're correct. I, I'm a Canadian. I'm an upbeat <laughs> kind of guy. <laughs> right. Well, I think that pretty much covers what we had listed to talk about and we've gone over time here so i really appreciate you sticking with us david mike you. it's my absolute pleasure thank you for having me thank you again for the uh machine intelligence foundation for rights and ethics media award for wake watch and wonder my www trilogy i'm absolutely thrilled and i gotta say uh if i can take one second here the award trophy is gorgeous what a, uh, first, I love your logo, which is kind of an integrated circuit with a path through mm -hmm. the maze. Very clever. But the idea of doing the award trophy in laminated layers of wood, the most natural of substances, uh, reminds us, uh, I think, that uh, the machine intelligence that we're all uh, looking forward to the advent of is a part of the natural world. It's not distinct from it. And I think just the symbolism of the trophy is just absolutely spot on. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank Mike in particular. It was all his, his design work and he's lovely. I, I thought it was a beautiful job. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with us. This is my pleasure. Great talk. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope all goes well for you, both uh, in your, your upcoming works and your health seems to be going well. And, and you've had some re really good 
really good luck with your health lately. So I, I'm glad and hope that continues. Thank you, David. So thank you very much. And I hope someday I'll have a chance to see you again. I probably won't see you in Chengdu, but I've been going to a few of the world cons. And so maybe Are you we'll, thinking of Chicago this year? Uh, very much considering Chicago. Yes, I am too. I am oh, too. Oh, that would be so, great. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll have, a have a drink. All right. Excellent. Well, it's been great. Thanks very much. And My pleasure. Live long and prosper. Thanks very much. Thanks again to Robert J. Sawyer for joining us on the Machine Intelligence Foundation for Rights and Ethics podcast. It was a great time and really some great, great feedback. So, oh, man, I really love that. I, I, I could talk to that guy for hours. That was really good and looking forward to seeing uh, his future work and, you know, go out, take a look at his, some of his other work besides the WWW oh, trilogy. Really, oh, man, you know, I have. Looking into his background for this, I've dropped at least three or four new books onto my must-read list. This is, <laughs> it's too tall already. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're always looking for great stories that show a beneficial coexistence between mankind and machine intelligence. So if you have any of that, go out to our website at machineintelligencefoundation.org and nominate for the 2022 Media Award. We certainly look forward to hearing what you have to say and what some of your favorite stories are. Thank you for joining us for this just absolutely phenomenal uh, podcast, and uh, we look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks.